Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Hi everyone, this is Vitas Corrales from Northwestern University and welcome to another edition of Ask a Chair. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Brian O'Neill at Wayne State University. Dr. O'Neill completed his emergency medicine residency at Detroit Receiving Hospital in 1989, where he was named chief resident. He then went on to complete an NIH fellowship in basic science research. Dr. O'Neill is nationally recognized as an expert in the field of cerebral ischemia and cardiac resuscitation. He's contributed to over 100 peer-reviewed papers on the field of resuscitation. He's also been involved in guideline and policy development within resuscitation and held several leadership positions within the American Heart Association, ASEP, SAEM, and other specialty organizations like the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation. Sure enough, Dr. O'Neill has helped write many of the AHA's guidelines, including the ACS guidelines and ACLS guidelines that our current listeners continue to rehearse and memorize as they train as medical students and residents. He now resides as the Chair of Emergency Medicine at Wayne State University and a Specialist in Chief of Emergency Medicine at Detroit Medical Center. Dr. O'Neill, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Vitesh, thanks for having me. Your reputation as a researcher obviously precedes you, and your biography uh, from Wayne State says that you're a director of basic science research in the Department of Emergency Medicine, which I feel like is rare for EM folks to be involved in even basic science research. How did you develop and nurture this interest throughout your career? Well, a couple of things. You know, when I started emergency medicine, we were a very clinical, very clinical specialty. And I was able to get on the floor for the science and the science research. And it's one of the things that actually delves back to when Ron Croman was sitting, he, he told me when he's sitting at the table with the medical specialties, well, the one thing they told him uh, was that emergency medicine cannot be a specialty unless it has a body of literature that it owns, which is a very telling thing. I mean, at that time, what did emergency medicine own? We didn't really own anything. Surgery had trauma. Medicine had many of the other things, but we didn't really own any body of literature. So quickly after that, uh, there was a lot of publications that came through annals that looked at EMS and emergency care, the golden hour, those things that uh, uh, really we own. And now I think we actually own cardiac arrest as a entity. And so when there's not much literature going on around there and that there's not uh, a lot of research that are, is being generated, it's, it's it's easy to stand out a little bit. So I think I had an advantage that the, the field was kind of light when I started. So that's my disclaimer. Well, I got it too. So the whole truth is this, Vitas. I, uh, I had no intention ever of becoming a researcher. Never. I thought there were a bunch of nerds and lab rats and I would never want to... <laughs> I would never want to go out and have a beer with any of them. Really? Yes, you see, that's kind of true. So then I'm in my third year, and I'm trying to get into emergency medicine. So I want a letter. I want a letter from somebody who's got national uh, recognition. So I I go up to Michigan State, and I spend a month with this gentleman named Blaine White, who uh, was one of the smartest docs I've ever met in my life. And I did a month with him doing research in that time. We were doing cardiac arrest research on animals that was a full recovery model. And he let me do everything. This guy, you know, it was just the perfect mentor. And at that time, I didn't even realize I was being mentored. But we're doing procedures. We're doing CPR. We were doing at that time, we were bypassing. We put these patients on bypass. We were doing critical care medicine at, you know, at the very primitive level, like, Peep of five was uh, uh, the end expiratory port was 
uh, in five centimeters of water. I mean, that's exactly how we did our peep. So the learning experience for me was just amazing, just amazing. And he let me do everything. So I was hooked. I was hooked. I mean, the, the science was fascinating. The physiology was, you know, the, the absolute core of emergency medicine. It was a wonderful experience. And I hung on to that. I hung on that during residency. I hung on to that after the fellowship, and it just stayed with me. I mean, I think if you were going to come up with an emergency, I think cardiac arrest would be the ultimate emergency that we in particular own and, and can take care of. So, I mean, that was always our core. And I, the reason the passion stayed with me is Detroit. Detroit had one of the worst rates of survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. In fact, there's a wonderful uh, graph that was in one of the papers, I think Mickey Eisenberg did, that showed that we didn't even make a bar. Uh, it was Detroit's name, and it was we were so low, we were 0.2.7% survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, that we didn't even show up as a color. There wasn't even a bar on that. And that every time I saw that on a national meeting, that just grinded. It was grinding me. And I... it. You know, I watch during my residency, and it, it was a shame. Your your chance of survival from out of hospital cardiac arrest should not be based upon your zip code. So we spent a lot of time. We spent a lot of time uh, first looking into what the problem was, identifying the high-risk areas. We did some really cool stuff with uh, uh, geocoding where we would take the cardiac arrest rates. We would take the uh, rates of bystander CPR and made hotspots where there were high arrest rates and low incidents of CPR. And those were really the, where we targeted our interventions, uh, interventions in the community, interventions for hypertension, other things that were the cause of it. And thankfully... In uh, 2018, we got our uh, cardiac arrest rates up to 7.8% discharge from hospital with uh, two-thirds of those being neurologically intact. Not quite at the national average, but a heck of a change from where we were. So we've made progress, but we still need to make progress. And, you know, the thing is, is that when you really get into this, it's a uh, cardiac arrest is due to a number of things. And it's it's just basically the end all ultimate problem to many things that have been proven for years and years. And we really had to get into, particularly in Detroit, which is a desert for primary care, uh, really had to get into the patient care long term uh, to really change these. And uh, our collaborators like Phil Levy have really been looking at hypertension, which in Detroit has been a major driver. It's not coronary artery disease that uh, our, our population has. It's the hypertensive heart disease that they have. And, you know, cardiac arrest and CPR is just cool. Uh, no pun intended with TTM, but it is, uh, <laughs> it is, it is uh, the ultimate. We're pushing on all of the organs. It really presses you to to understand your physiology, and, and they're the sickest patients you'll ever take, on, uh, take care of. And that's really where my passion is when you move forward with that. So uh, you look at this and how did you develop a new tree? You know, it was, always, it was already a passion. I don't think I really needed to nurture it. Uh, I think the key, and uh, it's one of the questions that's following this, is uh, how do you take and develop and nurture? And really, that is find your passion, you find your mentor, you invest in, in yourself, in your future, and then after that, you'll probably build such a base that it'll keep carrying you forward. Because now it's not to the point where I need to nurture it, it's, it's, in, my, it's in my face every day. So that's that's actually that's a big thing. So, and I, and I got to tell you that, you know, the basic science is rare, no question. Um, Blaine, I think, was the first ever to get an NIH grant from as a basic scientist in emergency medicine. I'm going to tell you that it wasn't received well. He did not have a PhD, and it was an old boys club. 
And, you know, the first didn't go, and I don't think we really nailed it until the third or fourth. But by that time, our science was so solid that they just couldn't say no. So he was one of the first to actually get an R01 and in basic science for emergency medicine. That kind of opened the door. You know, you always you stand on the shoulders of giants. And that is true. I mean, they really had a, our forefathers really had to drive our four persons really had to drive things and, and change. And, and I was lucky enough to work with uh, Ron Crom, Brooks Bach, Blaine White, Judy Tetnality, some of the people that really, really were drivers of emergency medicine. And, and that was wonderful for me, as, uh, wonderful for me in early in my career to see such amazing people doing great work. So I think that if, for the listeners, I think, uh, Vitas, is that I, there's, there's two things that as I look back in my career and like, gosh, how the heck did I even end there? I'm going for all I want is a letter. And I end up with a, a career, which was really a, a wild swing for me. And I think, you know, when opportunities are presented to you, you should take them. You know, there is risk, but, you know, uh, the, greatest, the greatest risk is taking none at all. And there was a quote, and I think it was from Einstein, that, uh, that Blaine had in his office, that uh, brain expanded to a new dimension will never retract to its previous size. So you expanded, you learn, you expanded, you learn, and it just continued to make you be better as a physician and better as a scientist. And the second thing is, is that once you define, you have to define your passion, but once you've defined your passion, you really need to seek out a, a mentor. And the mentor is not always going to be the best in the field. But uh, your mentor is going to be somebody you can have a relationship with who has enough expertise to push you to the next level and bring you around. So, I mean, that was very big. That's a fantastic answer. (laughs) A lot of different themes that you identified. It's funny that, you know, you mentioned that emergency medicine in its infancy needed kind of basic science research to get a seat at the table amongst the other specialties, but also you were trying to get a seat at the table uh, for residency and seeking out that basic science research. I'd like to tease apart the mentorship aspect that you mentioned a little bit more when you talked about how you were able to find an amazing mentor that you didn't even realize you were getting mentored at that time. I noticed that on your biography, you've won a multitude of different teaching awards from different hospitals (laughs) and different universities. Do you have any advice, I guess, for our listeners who are typically medical students and residents, if they're struggling to find mentorship or how to go about finding mentorship as they kind of progress through their career? Yeah, that can be tough sometimes. And uh, in particular for emergency medicine, since we have such a wide scope, sometimes it's difficult to find mentors, particularly in emergency medicine in your area. But I think the beauty of emergency medicine is you're not tied to having only emergency medicine physicians as your mentors. I think the sequence is this, is that you define your passion or what you believe is your passion. You seek out expertise in the field, particularly if you have a niche that you, you know, if you're doing cerebral ischemia post-cardiac arrest, you would search up who is, who's been uh, active in that field. If they're close by, great. If they're not close by, that's, you know, that's not a problem. It used to be a problem, but now I don't think it's a problem at all. You come very prepared uh, to a meeting with this potential mentor. You have an idea of what you want to do. You have an idea of the science. You have an idea of how you would like to either prove or disprove uh, what you believe the science is saying. And then you, uh, you make sure that you're able to have a relationship with this person. And then what you do is really what you need to do with any, like any relationship is you need to, you need to invest in that relationship. 
You know, I think that one of the best things for, to learn how to become a, a good mentor is, is to be the mentee first. I mean, a good mentor is, is uh, you know, Blaine was kind of like a second father figure to me. It was involved in the whole person, you know, what do you need to do to get to the next career? Uh, how are we going to get to the next grant? Where it's going to be your niche? How are you going to define your niche and your expertise? And I mean, Blaine's method was basically he, uh, when I learned to write a paper, I sat next to him. And this is back when you could smoke pipes in rooms. And he would, <laughs> he would smoke his pipe and I would sit right next to him at the computer. And we would go through the paper line by line, redlining it explaining why he changed what he changed and uh, it was it was an amazing experience i uh I mean, certainly you could do that you could do that remotely uh, however i think the instantaneous feedback and the discussion is, is something you lose a little bit of but certainly you can do it long term so and part of that has to be that uh, i would pick a mentor who is somewhat established and if you if you pick up a junior mentor Sometimes they are still trying to build their career, and if they're still trying to build their career, it takes a special mentor to be able to grab a mentee and drag them along with them instead of utilizing the mentee to advance their career. So that's a big part of it. But, you know, if your interest is outside of emergency medicine, there's plenty of people who want to collaborate there. And if you look at it from a mentor's point of view, if I have another set of eyes, I have a sharp mind, I have somebody who's willing to do the experiments that we both think are important. It only adds to what the mentor can do. It expands his reach and ex- it expands his ability. So, and it, it is an investment of time, no question. And that investment is front-loaded, front-loaded heavily to make sure that this this mentee can get to their the next stage of their career. But it's a win-win. If you pick the right mentor and the right mentee, it's a win-win and everybody wins and all boats rise. So I think that's very, very important. Awesome. That's fantastic. You're certainly right. I, you know, in my own experience, I feel like there's often more interest than you'd initially expect, especially when you're approaching people from the emergency medicine standpoint. I think there's a lot of people that are open to having mentees that um, are willing to work and collaborate with them. But it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, your mentors don't necessarily have to be in emergency medicine to be excellent mentors. It's important that when you do meet with them, you come prepared and you come prepared to work and invest in that kind of relationship. And it sounds like also kind of, you know, you might not realize at the time, but look for the unexpected lessons with your mentor too, not just the research aspect of it. In your initial answer, you kind of talked about how you were irked about Detroit having been at the bottom rung of those graphs. And are you from the Detroit area or Michigan in general? And what about that, I guess, kind of irked you? And I noticed that through your career, you stayed in in Detroit is kind of that sense of ownership of practicing, which in an area that you call home kind of, was that a driver in terms of your research and kind of your passion? Absolutely. And I, I don't know if it was Detroit based, but it was the fact that uh, this was the population that I was serving and, and we were failing them. So I'm born and raised in Detroit. I lived in East Detroit uh, initially, and then uh, I spent at least 15 years in Detroit itself. And uh, yeah, that's my home. Uh, I'm a diehard Wings fan, and Detroit uh, had always been kind of like the redheaded stepchild. Uh, you know, you look back and the, the old jokes, and you listen to some other things. You know, you could well, you could be in Detroit was like the tagline. You know, and that kind of I guess it rubbed me a little bit. But the fact is, is that our patients were, were uh, had extreme needs that were not being met, and I think that uh, part of my thing was that if I could 
help with the cardiac arrest rate. Hopefully the things would trickle down and it ended up trickling down to uh, patient care and other things that were there. But, you know, I think that, you know, there are drivers, there are significant drivers for humans. And, you know, one is, you know, there's anger, jealousy, love, and other thing. I think this one, this was, I was angry that we were not able to give care to our patients as we should. And I thought this needed to be corrected. So that's where, so that's where the passion came from. And the passion's still there because we haven't fixed it. We've made huge strides, but we haven't fixed it. So, yeah, so it is a Detroit-based thing for me. But I think when you find out, uh, when you things that really drive you as a human and other things that are going to certainly drive your, or your career are things that you are certainly engaged in and, and hit you at a guttural level. Those are where your passions are going to from. And that, those are the things you should chase because you don't need to nurture a passion. It's already there. That's awesome. Thank you so much. My next question is, you know, you were an established researcher with several grants and doing lots of research, but eventually you transitioned to this administrative role. Did you always see that happening or did that kind of just happen by happenstance? And how did you make that transition and how, how did you get yourself prepared for a new role? That's kind of a funny story. I think that my whole life, I had a healthy disrespect for administrators. <laughs> you know, I often wondered whether the administrator was working for me or the administration. And uh, I used to have very spirited discussions with my administrators. I was actually was the born of the age when they first started protocols, like chest pain protocols or, you know, the other protocols were there. And I thought to myself, I'm not a robot. So I actually spent a fair amount of my time Going around the going around the algorithms and doing it cheaper and better uh, than the algorithms itself, and I was taking a task a couple of times on that. But that's the rebellious side of me. I thought at some point in my career that I probably would end up as a chair. Certainly not at the time that I became chair. But quite frankly, for me, the choice was. I looked at the uh, the landscape. I looked how many quality chairs that were out there at that time. At that time, many institutions had been looking for chairs for a long time. The last couple of chairs at other institutions that I worked at uh, didn't work out, and they, I don't think they had the respect for research. I thought, uh, you know, that at that time, we were kind of shifting to a, not the traditional model of a chair, but more of a clinical manager, more of the administrative type instead of the traditional academic chair that was coming in. And, I, and uh, I'd looked at other institutions, and when the clinical chair comes in, certainly the clinical portion of it uh, is improved, but... Uh, sometimes the research the research portion uh, takes a hit, and I think that the the person the chair at the top really needs to share the passions and the drive of what we believe the mission of our department is and My concern was is that we were going to get a chair in that potentially did not have those uh, those views and viewpoints, and that 's why I took the chair job in fact. I told the dean, the only way out, I said, you should do an external search. And they said, we don't want to do an external search. And I said, we well, should do it because it gives validity to the chair coming in. And then he goes, I don't want to do a search. And so I, uh, the compromise was if the faculty voted unanimously to put me in his chair, I would take the job which was probably not the right thing to do. I didn't think there was a snow, you know, I didn't think that was going to happen at all. Although, quite frankly, I never saw the vote, but he said it was unanimous and I took the job. And, and, you know, then, you know, what do you do now? What do you do now? And, uh, you know, it was funny when I read that question. I uh, was not 
you know, a lot of the chairs go to uh, seminars about how to be chairs and how to handle people and, and, and things like that. I never did any of that. Uh, I did that, didn't do that because I didn't want to become that administrator. You know, there's, there's a fairly classic line in, in demeanor that comes out of the chairs when they've been through these sessions and, I didn't want to be that chair. The role that you, you know, the question was, what is the role that made you, that best prepared you to be a chair? Being a father. No question, it was being a father. Because these are all your kids. They're all your kids. You need to nurture them. You need to drive them to the, to the right spot. Uh, you need to care for them. You need to lift them up when they've fallen down. You need to, you need to correct them when they're bad. But I think that's truly the role that, and, and I got to tell you, the, Patience. I learned a lot of patience from my children, and, and my wife helped me with my patience. But I think that's truly the role that's best. And and um, although I didn't follow the traditional chair path, if you really a lot of the things that we do for for chairs are very similar to our roles. As either you know, I ran a couple of businesses before I got into medical school, uh, so I at least had a, a, a side there. But you know. The job, of, the job of a chair is to enable their faculty to reach their goals uh, and to push them to, to reach those goals. You know, there's the clinical and the business side of it that you have to do, but most of that is, is fairly common sense uh, when it comes down to it. Not that I'm bashing on my other clinical chairs, uh, but uh, a lot of it is, you know, it's dollars and cents and how do I maximize my experience my uh, returns without uh, significantly decreasing my expenses to the point where it uh, cripples my machine. That's awesome. Well, I guess first, Wayne State University residents, you've heard it first, uh, even Dr. O'Neill has gone around the administrators from time to time. So if you're not. <laughs> I don't think I went around them. It was, that was my rebellious stage who were saying that uh, I don't need an algorithm to do this. I could do it better. Although I can tell you, Having written algorithms, you can't write an algorithm for every patient. You, you write an algorithm for the majority of patients, and, and every once in a while, you're going to have to deviate a little bit from that algorithm because it doesn't fit that algorithm. But the algorithms are written to bring everybody up at least to a mean uh, so they take care of them. And, and most of the algorithms that we've written are high and tight. Uh, I think early in the algorithms, you know, your algorithm is based upon the science. And at that time, the science was weak. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing with chest pain. Come on, we were using CPKMBs last year. I mean, uh, and LDH. I mean, this was, <laughs> this was some time back. So they were, the, the algorithms were imperfect. Uh, now I think that I look at the algorithms, I think they're, they're much more solid. They're based on science. So I think the algorithms are a little bit better, although I still tweak the algorithms a bit now and then. I thought it was awesome, too, that you said that being a chair is a lot like being like a father. It's kind of heartwarming to hear in medicine where sometimes it can feel a little bit, at least interpersonally, kind of cold of an environment. So it's kind of interesting that it seems like once you become a chair, it becomes less about your development, but more about the development of that family that you're nurturing. Yeah, that's an absolute key. You don't become chair uh, to advance your career. It's usually something that is it's there and it's been advanced and this is this is the next stage for you. But with my healthy respect uh, or disrespect for administration, I don't like the top down. I don't like the top down. I, you know, I've never used it, you know the line, I'm the doctor, you're the nurse. I've never used, well, I'm the chair, I want you to do that. That's just, I think that's a weak stance. I think that some think it's a position of power, but I think it's a position of weakness. I think what I need to do is convince you it's the right thing to do based upon science and, and reason to move forward. Uh, I don't like that 
tell you what you do. I want you, I want to convince you it's the right thing to do. And so our relationships are, you know, this nice thing about emergency medicine, we're kind of the, the blue collar specialty. So our, our relationships are not top down. If anything, I, I tell them I work for you. And I do. I work for my faculty. It's not about me. It's about my faculty and, and what they need to get to the next step. And we've been very successful in that. I mean, we had a lot of assistant professors. Now we have more tenured professors, associate professors and, than we've ever had in our history of, uh, of the department. So, And that's, that's not me. That's the people that are around me that uh, have picked up and, and grabbed their role and embraced it and moved on. And uh, it's never really about the chair. It's, uh, it's about the people that are around them that really make the department important. Over time, I'm sure you've seen, you talked about EM in its infancy and how it didn't really have a seat at the table and was still just a newly developing field. And you've watched that change over time during your career. What kind of challenges do you see on the horizon for emergency medicine? And with that, what kind of roles do you think residents should be thinking about in terms of preparing for those hurdles? Yeah, I saw that question. That's good. I got to tell you, I could have uh, six months ago, I could have given you a much better answer to that question. <laughs> Post-COVID is changing a lot of things. You know, it's changed with uh, what we're doing. You know, it's changed how patients perceive the emergency department. I mean, we were talking earlier that, you know, volumes went down precipitously and now they're slowly coming back. But, uh, you know, we're spiking again with COVID. So, gosh, what's going to happen in six months and how, did they, how are they going to view the emergency department? If you asked me this question six months ago, I would have told you this. The role of the emergency department is going to be expanded because uh, the hospitals can become much more critical care, meaning it's going to be a large critical care. So only the very, very sick are going to be coming into the hospital and, and often the less sick will either have home care or other things taken care of it because the model right now is not the most efficient use of resources. I think that uh, emergency medicine, the biggest things to tackle are with this critical care and with the shift, uh, they really need to be facile and uh, we need to be facile with use of uh, resources outside of the hospital. And I think really for emergency medicine, particularly in areas like Detroit, we need to get more engaged in the health of, and, and welfare of our, of our patients. Uh, although it's not a good business model, uh, it's the right thing to do for, for the population. So we have done a lot. I mean, we've been very engaged in our community. For our emergency department, we do uh, HIV screening, Hep C, uh, hemoglobin A1C, hypertension, cardiovascular risk, and even to the point where we try them to help them navigate the the system through their healthcare, which is pretty unusual. And all of that is done through the Department of Emergency Medicine and is grant funded, and uh, uh, the hospital puts no contribution to that. But I think that's a big key. And so I think really for emergency medicine for us is that we really need to be prepared for the next stage. I think that uh, academically we're moving forward well. I think for the, the clinical and other business side of that, it's become very difficult. We have large mega corporations that are just lopping up huge practice plans. Our practice is old school, way old school. We're a 501c3 that's an independent democratic, I guess we're semi-democratic. We have a board that's made up of all the members that, that choose, which it, we are, since we're a 501c3, we don't really retain any, and there are no retained monies, and, and the, everybody's salary is well known, and the money that comes in is the money that goes out, which is a dinosaur. It's a dinosaur in the world right now, and I think the, the one of the big things, and this came out with the, the rape of emergency medicine way back when, uh, is that 
the large corporations aren't going to treat you uh, as the great physician you are. They're going to treat you more as a number and somebody that I can plug into a place and, and uh, follow the money that you generate. I'm not a fan of that at all. I don't think that improves patients' care. And I think that we really need to be smart about that. I think we really need to try and, although it's very difficult, really need to try and foster the the traditional kind of mom and pop shops or uh, the academic groups and, and try and stay away from the megacorps because some, I think, do a much better job than others as far as engaging their physicians. But in general, I don't think that's the best model for us. Interesting. Any other wisdom or advice for our listeners? Well, I guess in general is not everybody's going to be a researcher, but I think that the, one of the biggest things for COVID that came up, so I think my basic science background was an amazing help for COVID because I could dive into the basic science literature, looking at COVID, looking at uh, how the virus attacks. And I'll look at it. There's a lot of research out there on COVID, not COVID-19, but COVID in general. And and the mechanisms behind the, the replication. And there's plenty of cell culture work out there that looked at many different medications. They looked at Lysartan, hydroxychloroquine, a lot of these uh, medications that we that came up into the literature. And if you delve into the literature, you know, protocols will change. I tell this to the residents all the time. Protocols will change fairly often. Physiology doesn't change. Since the lac operon, when we got that wrong, I can't think of a significant change in physiology that's there. So really, I try to drive them to base their decisions in the physiology. Algorithms are supposed to follow the physiology, but again, uh, physiology is the, is the driver. So really root that in the physiology, and particularly that became important in COVID, because if you follow the societies, we got it wrong. We got it wrong. We called it ARDS. It's not ARDS, you know. And you know, nobody ever said intubate early, but somehow it got interpreted as in, and that what they said was avoid crash intubation. But I think that it flipped over to a intubate early, which was just the wrong thing to do. And I was rallying the saber like crazy about that. And you know, when you looked at this, the physiology was off. I mean, these patients were clotting. Uh, we had so many pulmonary embolisms in, in Detroit. It was just crazy. So, you know, when you read the physiology, it was probably a PI-1 increase and maybe an AT3 decrease that led to this uh, hypercoagulable state. So I pushed really hard on our hospital to come up with a, a very aggressive anticoagulation protocol that went through. We pushed the high-flow nasal oxygen because I wanted to get them off of the intubation because it was very difficult. And I don't know what your experience was on a V-test, but the problem with these patients was they were just hypoxic. And once you intubated them and they took away their hypoxia, and now they're agitated. We, I can tell you, we went through six different drug protocols for sedation because we kept running out of the drugs. And the thing was, don't intubate them in the first place. Uh, let them declare themselves not in crash intubation, but let them declare themselves before you jumped in. And I think one of the biggest things is, is that when you read the literature that was out there for COVID, this is, you know, anytime I've heard residents, I don't need to read the literature. Yes, you did. Yes, you do, because you have to be able to take that. And the blogosphere was crazy. I guess I'm part of the blogosphere now. But the blogosphere drove me crazy because misintervention was magnified, magnified, magnified. The media outlets took and ran with it. 
And, you know, I would sit down and we'd do it in our journal club. And I said, this just doesn't make sense. Does this make sense to you? It doesn't make sense. And this was when we were looking at the hydroxychloroquine data that was out there. It was, they were, we were not looking at the same populations when they compared the two. And you need to have that depth uh, and ability to read the literature so that you can drive your your health course. So I think COVID was an amazing example of why you need to understand the physiology of the disease. And it was an amazing example of why you have to be able to read the literature because you would have been led down the wrong track over and over and over again. And I guess it's a perfect uh, reason for the algorithms, right? You know, they're throwing the algorithms back at me again. I guess I haven't changed much, but I was rallying against the algorithm because I thought they were wrong. And I thought they were wrong based upon the physiology. So I think those would be, you know, I was I was born in the age of the 60s, right? And the mantra was, think for yourself and question authority. I think things haven't changed much. <laughs> Fair enough. Kind of interesting. We came back full circle here and talking about kind of, you got to go back to the basic science and the physiology of things, you know, to have a strong foundation and kind of underpinning to what you do. Well, thank you so much for all of your time today and taking a moment to chat with us. We had a great discussion where we talked about kind of finding your way in research and the importance of, of mentorship and how to put yourself out there and knowing to come prepared and also looking for those unexpected lessons with mentorship. We also talked about kind of how passion can really fuel anything and that when you find a passion, it's not work necessarily. It's, it's fun and it's a, it's a hobby. It's an endeavor. And whatever that is and whatever your motivators are is to hold on to them. If that means practicing in your hometown where you really feel like you have that extra ownership of your patients and you're trying to bring your, your community up or, you know, whether it's the fascinating science behind resuscitation, finding your passion is, is important to kind of helping advance your interests. And then we also talked about the greatest risk is not taking any risk at all. And sometimes, you know, new opportunities are around every corner, including becoming a chair. And when you become a chair, one great advice is to treat your colleagues and your department as your family and see your role become more of a father and less about your own career interests. But thank you so much for all your time, Dr. O'Neill, and uh, we greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. Hopefully uh, you got what you wanted. Yeah. All right.